0: And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards.
1: Hey, welcome to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, episode 17. Can you believe we've already done 17? Well, this is uh, episode 17 of 40 Acres and a Fool. I mean, when we first started doing the show... It was the depths of winter. It was so cold and miserable, and we were just dreaming of our gardens and being able to get outside. And I got to tell you, I'm I'm very pleased to tell you that this is the first episode of 40 Acres and a Fool coming to you from outside, in the garden, in the 40 acres. I have no idea how long the battery on my laptop is going to last, but hopefully it's long enough for an episode. It is a beautiful uh, evening. Just before sunset, as I record this podcast, I, I think I'm in the golden zone right now. Uh, the mosquitoes seem to have gone away for the moment. The uh, little tiny bugs that will come out and will become attracted to my computer screen when the, uh, uh, when the sun sets. They've not yet arrived, so it's a, a beautiful evening, probably 75 degrees or so. The uh, sun, this salmon color... In the west, I'm uh, sitting about halfway uh, down between the house and the garden right now, underneath the shade of a really large dogwood. It's a massive dogwood. I've never seen one this big, but uh, I don't think it's supposed to get this big, honestly. But they just let it go. Uh, you may hear in the background some of the birds chirping. It's a uh, fairly noisy evening. You might hear a couple of the goats in the background, depending on how good the microphone is. Uh, we've got our Goat babies, still uh, two baby goats uh, with us. Freckles, Miss Freckles, and uh, I, I had nothing to do with this name. I probably would have, honestly, I would have gone with something a little bit more imaginative. But uh, splotchy for the splotches on his face. Those are the uh, two baby goats. They are uh, probably uh, ten or fifteen feet away from me right now, but they're uh, they're sort of hanging out. And then we've got the uh, the, the grown-up goats. You might hear actually, you might hear Lola the sheep. She's a bah, in the background. She's fairly noisy this time of night. Uh, Miss E is milking at the moment as I do the podcast, so she's uh, with Fiona and she'll be walking Fiona back and then taking Franny up. We're getting almost a gallon of milk a day, which is um, that's a lot of milk a day. Actually, it's got to be it's got to be almost a gallon of milk every time we milk. We're talking almost two gallons a day. Because my family likes to drink milk, we have a lot of extra milk. My, Miss E made uh, fresh chevre. I gotta say, it like that too, Chevre, which is uh, fresh goat cheese. Uh, we had this huge ball of chevre that we were uh, uh, eating. Fantastic! It's you know you put the little the, the herbs on top and you roll it up in the log and you could sell it for like twenty five bucks. Yeah, that kind of that kind of goat cheese. Um, making a Monterey Jack goat cheese right now goat milk yogurt uh all kinds of things that you can do with milk we're trying to do with milk right now uh goat's milk because we have a lot of it but it's tasty it's delicious and it uh, saves us about uh, what 350 a gallon at the store for uh the cow's milk we are still buying a uh, cow's milk on occasion um but very very rarely we went uh well over a week Actually, without uh, purchasing any milk, still unfortunately buying our tomatoes from the farmers market and the uh, grocery store at the moment. Although the bloody butchers uh, continue to do quite well, uh, several of the bloody butcher plants—those are the uh, uh, the first tomatoes that ever have have you know sprung up here—they're uh, doing quite nicely. The carrots—I'm amazed. Our third year of growing carrots, we finally have good solid beds of carrots we uh, went and thinned them out because you know when you plant carrots you're just sort of scattering the seeds and then inevitably what happens is uh, you, you know, they'll grow up in clusters and clumps and you gotta thin them out or else they won't have space to grow so we thinned out our carrots uh, three beds this week and they're actually long enough that, that they're, they resemble little tiny baby carrots as opposed to simply roots uh, from a you know little sprig of parsley so all of the different colors of carrots that we had planted are, are are now visible. So you've got the atomic reds and the cosmic purples and the uh, uh, ivory covered uh, ivory colored not ivory covered that would be a totally different thing. The ivory colored uh, carrots are all starting to uh, to to be seen when you pull them out of the garden. It's just really cool. It's a good time of year. You know, it's again it's the time of year where. Uh, it's like, OK, whew, you, you don't have quite as much more maintenance uh, than it is prep work. And now you're starting to see the fruits of your labor uh, that are that are in reach. Soon, soon you'll be gathering things from your garden. We did actually harvest our, our first uh, vegetable from the garden this week. Actually, two beets. Just two. Not really enough to, to eat, but they were ready. They were ready to go. And one of them was an early wonder, uh, which is exactly as the uh, name says. It's just a beet that uh, is very quick growing. You can put it in the ground. It's pretty frost resistant. So it's one of the first things that uh, is going to show up. The other beet that arrived was a, a Chioga beet, which is an Italian heirloom variety. The uh, cool thing about the Chiogas, they're, they've they got this beautiful red uh, color. The early wonders are a very deep purple, but the uh, Chiogas are a much brighter red. When you cut the Chiogas, uh, the inside, it's a it's a, it's a bullseye. Uh, you've got these alternating uh, white and r- red rings uh, you know, going all the way into the tin ring. Uh, it's a really sweet Beet. We just sliced it really thin and uh, and ate it raw, and it was uh, it was it was really sweet. It was not overly beat-y, uh, if that makes any sense. And I, you know, again as a gun owner and somebody who likes to shoot, the idea of beets that look like targets. I mean, come on, how cool is that? So they're called the Chiogas, C H I O G G I A. They take uh, about sixty days to uh, grow to maturity. The nice thing about beets is that you can uh, grow them, you know, throughout the year. You can, uh, even in the same bed, you know, you just put the beet seeds down every few weeks or so. And as you're thinning out the beets, as they're starting to grow, you just, uh, you're able to maintain a bed. And and so you can get a nice amount of beets uh, in a garden bed. I realize that might not be an actual selling point for you if you don't like the taste of beets, but uh, anyway, there you go. And uh, here we go. We're going to take a time out as I say hello to Miss E and hello to Fiona. Hello, Miss E. Hello, darling. Oh, uh, you can you, you got to say it louder than that. Oh, hello, darling. There you go. All right, I think maybe we picked that up. All right, we're going to step away for just a moment or two, but we've got more forty acres and a fool from the forty acres on a uh, beautiful. Late spring evening, stick around. We'll be right back with more right after this.
0: 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stew. They don't realize that we actually don't at all feel this way. Like, they have this weird thing in their minds that white people sit around, especially conservatives, thinking of ways to call black people naughty names. The bottom line is yes, absolutely, this biker gang could be called a thug. I'm completely comfortable with it. In fact, they are thugs. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards continues on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome
1: back. It's 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. Don't forget the day job, the real job, uh, host of NRA News, Cam & Company. You can hear us live weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on nranews.com. Also, uh, midnight Eastern, 9 Pacific. That is not live, unfortunately. You get the uh, same show you hear live at 2 p.m. On Sirius XM, Patriot 125, On Demand, through the NRA app and through iHeartRadio. Plus, you can find us on uh, iTunes. We're everywhere, simply everywhere. And uh, uh, Sportsman Channel as well, 5 p.m. Eastern each and every weekday. Hope that you'll tune in for the latest second Amendment news and information. There's been a lot going on. It's the time of year when a lot of state legislatures are wrapping up, and uh, we've been dealing with campus carry issues in uh, Texas and in Nevada. Uh, as I record this, it's still uh, too early to see how things are going to shake out, but we can uh, talk about that maybe a little bit on next week's program. Uh, I will say that, uh, not, to, not to get too far away from the 40 acres, but um, yesterday, uh, Tuesday, the 26th of May, I stayed at work until uh, actually 1 a.m. on May 27th because I was watching the Texas House debate the uh, campus carry measure. And uh, I was also online on Twitter and I, I did something I don't normally do, which is um, seek actively seek to engage people I disagree with. And I didn't I wasn't trolling. I wasn't trying to start an argument. I didn't call people names. It's not what I it's not what I do. And I, I frankly, I don't think it's helpful. I, I, I know it might feel good, but, it you know, we, we got to be about more than just the feels here. Um, I was curious, actually, I was curious to see if. Engaging a university professor or college students in Texas, if I could get an argument that I hadn't heard from the anti-gun groups, the, the standard talking points, which to me aren't really logical. The standard talking points are they're arming college students. No, we're talking about expanding where concealed carry holders can carry. These are people who are already carrying in society to simply say, okay, now you don't just have to stay on the sidewalk on a college campus, which is again already legal in Texas. You don't just have to stay in the parking lot. Uh, you're not just uh, allowed to walk across the quad. You can go inside a building. That's not how the anti gunners have been, have been portraying this uh, piece of legislation in the state of Texas. So I heard a lot of that. I heard uh, uh, students are just too responsible I'd be worried about my, my safety in the classroom To which I would ask or Do you feel unsafe right now? Because Again, you know Concealed carry holders are more law abiding than the uh, general population So and We know again that, that a gun ban Doesn't Prevent people from Breaking that policy or breaking that law And going onto a college campus with a gun And harming other people We know that so, do you feel unsafe right now? Nobody really wanted to answer that question. Uh, I also saw a lot of, oh my God, I feel so unsafe now that this has passed. Mostly from college students, to which I would ask, do you feel unsafe when you're not on a college campus right now? Because again, what we're talking about is simply expanding where concealed carry holders can carry. So i got to say, I was a little, uh, I wasn't necessarily surprised, but I was Strangely, a little disappointed that I didn't hear anything that I hadn't already read and considered and thought about and seen the uh, the flaws and the uh, reasoning. If there wasn't a reasoning involved, and not just again the feels, it was all just the talking points. Uh, and what was even worse is that when you would start to try to engage someone, they would simply. Be done with the conversation. I was talking with a uh, professor in Massachusetts about this, and uh, at first the professor said, "Well, I'm not opposed to concealed carry. I just don't think uh, the guns belong in a classroom setting." Um, and so, you know, we talked about that, and I kind of explained, um, you know, what what the law currently is, and you know, what was the asked what the concern was about uh, guns in the classroom. Did she feel unsafe right now? Uh, and then it became an argument about, well, I, you know, self defense, guns for self defense is wrong. Defending yourself, actually, is what this uh, came down to. Defending yourself is wrong. And this college professor insisted that in Massachusetts, if you defended yourself with a firearm while you were being robbed, that you would be arrested and you would be facing charges because that's a crime. And I pointed out a, a link. To a Boston Globe story from just a few months ago, in which a licensed uh, concealed carry holder in the state of Massachusetts uh, shot and killed one of two individuals who was trying to rob him. He's not facing any charges because he was acting in self-defense. The robber's accomplice is facing murder charges uh, for being an accomplice to that crime, but but the the uh, the gun owner is not facing any charges. As soon as I pointed that out. Seriously, 30 seconds later, I get uh, there some response about uh, enjoy, I'm done. Enjoy your gun world or your gun-happy world or something like that. Now, look, it's no fun to be pointed out wrong. I, I get it. It isn't. Uh, but like I said, I wasn't calling people names. I wasn't trying to uh, give people a hard time. I was just trying to get people to think a little bit. And I've kind of come to the conclusion, at least the people that I was engaged with on Twitter don't want to. They they don't want to think about this. They've already thought, uh, maybe they think they've thought about it. Oh, boy, now we're getting into Donald Rumsfeldian unknown knowns and thought thoughts and unthought thoughts. But I don't think uh, that uh, uh, these opponents of campus carry really want to think about it too much. Because then... You know they can they can tell themselves ah, I'm not anti-gun I'm just in favor of gun safety, but then when you start bringing up these things again it becomes very transparently obvious that nah we're talking about anti-gun positions, um, and I don't know if they're deceiving themselves or if they're trying to deceive others I think it, they're doing a very poor job of deceiving others I don't know how successful they might be deceiving themselves but it was uh, I got to say it was it was kind of troubling. To see this lack of critical thinking from people who are either supposed to be getting an an education or are supposed to be providing (laughs) an education for students. It was, uh, like I said, sort of a a troubling look at the lack of critical thinking uh, in uh, at least some quarters of academia these days. I'm not quite sure how we uh, start educating the educators, but if you have any ideas, the email address is 40acrefool and gmail.com. When we come back, after a quick timeout, uh, yeah, we've got a book report or two, and we've also got your thoughts coming up a little bit later on in the program. Plus, we'll talk about what's going on in small-town America, specifically what's going on in Iowa, Are the uh, small-towns there in the Hawkeye State, losing their sense of, not just their their character, but their sense of community. Stick around. We'll be right back with more 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam
0: Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. You see how the government policies caused this, right? The government policies that resulted in joblessness. Government welfare programs that have led to dependence. This leads to increased drug use. This leads to more gangs. This leads to dangerous communities. We have government policies that have replaced the father. All of this caused by government. And then the government comes in and says, oh, phew, look at all of you. are a mess. Mike Slater. Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Cam Edwards here for 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. All right, well, we have been uh, talking. The sun has been slipping down into the sky. No longer do I see that uh, beautiful salmon pink color. Now it's definitely a little bit darker, and I'm starting to see the... uh, little tiny bugs start to gather in the darkness here. So we better get on with the uh, the book review. Um, as I said, you know, I've been working on the book that uh, Jim Garrity and I are writing. So haven't had a lot of time to actually read except for uh, a little bit of research material. So uh, this week's research material, and no, I'm not really going to talk about how this fits into the book that Jim and I are writing about. I did read a, uh, a, a history of the making of of Animal House. Yep. The, uh, the 1978 movie National Lampoon's Animal House. And of course, there have been several books written about Animal House over the years. So uh, the one that I ended up reading was by Maddie Simmons, who was uh, the producer. It's called Fat, Drunk and Stupid. The inside story of the making of Animal House. I'd actually like to know more about Matty Simmons. He he gets into how uh, the first chapter or so of the book, he gets into how he got into movie producing, how he got into National Lampoon. Uh, Matty Simmons helped create the modern credit card. He was one of the three men who came up with Diners card in New York in the 1950s, made scads of cash, ended up getting into magazine publishing. uh, and really took a shine to National uh, Lampoon and I almost said National Review can you imagine National Review's Animal House starring uh, Charles Cook Charles C.W. Cook uh, Jim Garrity Kevin Williamson Uh, that would just be incredible I don't even know who would be Flounder who uh, Bluto would be or who Otter would be but uh I'd pay money to see National Reviews Animal House. Anyway, um, Matty Simmons, the producer of National Lampoon's uh, Animal House, he, uh, he decided that they were going to. Uh, they they had done a play called Lemmings that was very successful. Decided they were going to get into uh, movies, and and they ended up they making Animal House, which you know it was it it, it, it was sort of this transcendent gross out. It was the the err movie for the rated R movies that. Uh, a generation of us surreptitiously grew up on, right? Uh, the first time that we watched uh, Revenge of the Nerds, for instance, as a uh, young kid, I was probably 11 or 12. My mom had absolutely no idea. I mean, she grew up in a day and age in which movies just, they weren't like Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, Police Academy, I mean, the list goes on and on. They they're, they're, they can all trace their uh, their their genesis back to National Lampoon's Animal House. So it was, it was interesting to learn uh, about some of the details. I, I will say, uh, Maddie Simmons' book, uh, Fat, Drunk, and Stupid, the inside story of the making of Animal House, it did have some inside stories. Uh, it was not dishy. You know, this wasn't a guy who was out to settle scores or anything like that. Uh, it was light. It was breezy. Uh, kind of reminded me of, of Carrie Elwes' uh, book about making the Princess Bride. You know, this is this was clearly a wonderful time in uh, Manny Simmons's life, and uh, he enjoyed it very much. So, you know, you don't hear a lot about the the parties, uh, the the just out of control uh, drugs and alcohol scene that that certainly was present. Uh, he does mention that Belushi wasn't wasn't involved. I mean, he makes reference to these things, but he doesn't dwell on them. So, if you want something a little bit more dishy and behind the scenes, um. Yeah, fat, drunken, stupid. The inside story of the making of Animal House probably isn't the one for you, but it was interesting, and uh, and I did read it. It was like I said, it was a very quick read. The other book that I'm making my way through right now is a, a new book by Craig Lambert. It's called Shadow Work: The Unpaid, Unseen Jobs That Fill Your Day, and it's a very, uh, it's an interesting premise. It's kind of a, a why didn't I think of that premise? Um, just pointing out all of the things that we are now responsible for that uh, a generation ago or maybe a little bit more, uh, hu- other human beings would have been doing these things like, you know, pumping our gas, for instance, um, bagging our groceries, uh, scheduling appointments, um, you know, all of the the convenience that uh, we have at our fingertips now with apps and uh, whatnot, replacing uh, jobs that uh, you know used to be done by other human beings. Uh, we talk about the 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 benefits in terms of the uh, customability of our life, so to speak. But uh, Lambert makes the case that we lose something as well. Uh, A, we are never able to get away from the Uh, consumer society we're always attached to the marketplace Uh, we are always able to buy or to sell whereas a generation ago uh you know if it was midnight and you really had a hankering for some uh doritos or a pot pie or something you were out of luck right the grocery store was closed maybe you could find a convenience store but uh, chances are wasn't going to be much around Um, now we live in a sort of 24-7 society. Oh, there goes a, uh, ambulance. Hope everybody's okay. Haven't seen any fire trucks or, uh, police cars speed by in the distance, so hopefully it's, uh, not anything too terrible. Apologize for the sirens there in the background. Uh, one day, I suppose, we'll have these self-driving cars, right? And the ambulance, uh, the robotic uh, EMTs will just load you into the gurney and take you to the hospital. And this is sort of what uh, uh, Craig Lambert is writing about, what we are losing all of, the, again, all of the the jobs we're taking on ourselves. I'm only a couple of chapters in, so I hesitate to pass judgment on it. But I will say uh, up to this point, there's a definite and acknowledged, it has to be said, uh, get off my lawn mentality. Uh, Lambert realizes that he is writing about a time that has gone by. He uh, acknowledges, at least uh, in what I've read, that he has no idea how to get back to uh, a different way. And instead, it's, it's more of a book that is simply acknowledging uh, the way it used to be and perhaps what we've lost since then. Now, again, uh, you make the case that we've gained quite a bit as well with the loss of some of these jobs. The uh, the self-service gas is uh, much easier. We're in and out. We don't have to wait for uh, some attendant to get to our car. I'm curious, do, do you think that we've, I don't know, gone uh, too far the other way where we're now uh, doing the work that, that other people used to be doing? We're doing it for free and it's eating into our uh, our own free time; that we're becoming too, too work obsessed. One of the one of the items that uh, Lambert writes about that I, I do have a little bit of an issue. He, he talks about commuting uh, and how commuting is shadow work. How that's time that if you add up, you know, the the average commute for the average American and the time that they spend in traffic, uh, and the average wage of the average American, you come up with a figure. Or he does of about forty four hundred dollars a year that is spent, time spent, uh, on your way to and from work, and that adds up, you know, to a pretty good chunk of change. The problem, though, is that I don't think we've ever had a time in which commuting was seen as something that was on the clock. Um, and it's not like we haven't had long commutes uh, in the past, right? <laughs> I mean... Look, don't get me wrong, traffic in Washington, D.C. is awful, and you can, you, know, you can spend an hour and a half going 15 or 20 miles, but when the average road allowed you to go 35 miles an hour, uh, and you may have still lived uh, 10 miles outside of town, and... Uh, you had to get there, or maybe you ended up having to walk two or three miles to work instead. You know, you still weren't getting paid. You, you still weren't on the clock uh, in that regard. So, like I said, there, there's a note of get off my lawn uh, to shadow work. I, I'm, I'm hoping that it dissipates as I make my way through the book. And uh, it is interesting to think about all of those uh, jobs and I won't say professions because uh, a lot of them weren't necessarily long-term jobs. But, uh, you know, you look today at the uh, the debate over raising the minimum wage, Los Angeles uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and there seems to be a recognition that that's going to lead to uh, more automation. It's going to lead to more small businesses not hiring uh, any extra help because their profit margins won't allow it. The idea... Um, is a a kind-hearted one. I think it's a benevolent one, right? We want to help people who aren't making a lot of money. We want to try to ensure that everybody has a job of, of value, that everybody has a job that pays them enough that they can uh, get by. And the problem is that's utopian, and there's really no way that a big city government is going to be able to do that, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not even sure that big cities are able to, uh, in in some cases, adequately handle things like roads, law and order, you know, public safety, things of that nature, much less uh, guaranteeing this sort of utopian city state where uh, everybody's taken care of and everybody works these great jobs that pay these wonderful wages uh, and we haven't all been replaced by robots. Yeah, I just don't see that happening. So that's been my uh, my reading material this week, Uh, sort of hit and miss. I I really want to sink my teeth into a a really good history book. I did talk to my dad uh, this week and he recommended a uh, book about Bunker Hill that hopefully I'll be taking up here before long. So, Dad, thank you very much for the book recommendation. I know that uh, my dad and my stepmother listen weekly, which I have to say I love and, uh, you know, I've had people say, oh, you have a nice voice for radio. My dad has the radio voice, really. And truly, it uh, it puts mine to shame. Uh, I'm hopefully going to be going to visit my dad at some point this summer, looking at a, a weekend in July. Might have to take the microphone with me and uh, maybe, maybe we can get dad on an episode of 40 Acres and a Fool as well. Talk about some uh, stories about growing up in Massachusetts as a, a kid in the... 30s and early 40s all right we're going to step away for just a moment here on this edition of 40 acres and a fool uh when we come back (laughs) the stars are starting to come out here i can see venus uh over on the uh, western sky rising uh so we're going to start to wrap things up here but we're going to get to some of your thoughts we've got a couple of emails the email address if you would like to share your thoughts 40 acres and a fool at gmail.com you can also follow me on instagram at cam edwards on Twitter at Cam Edwards and on Facebook at Cam Edwards2A. All right, stick around. We'll be right back with much more 40 Acres and a Fool.
0: 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Could there be some combustion involved?
1: <laughs> is it, I'm not sure they you get the difference between combustion and pump action. That's, it is a simulated firearm, a water gun, a squirt gun, a squirt pistol, It's simulated firearm. with? you like to be shot
0: with a water pistol?
1: I don't mind being on a hot summer day with my friends. Hell yeah.
0: The morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. I realized I didn't talk about this story out of Iowa. Um, it was actually a, a survey of residents in 99 towns across Iowa. Iowa State University uh, did this survey. And taking a look at, uh, at how these communities have changed over the past 20 years, Um, at uh, iowa state they've they've had a research team that's conducted a survey every 10 years to examine quality of life and uh, uh, social capital in the uh, 99 towns one in each county there in the state of iowa Uh, less than 30 percent of residents rated jobs and shopping as good or very good that actually was up from 15 to 16 percent in the previous survey which is you know that's actually good. I mean we've not heard much good news about uh, small towns. We're talking about anywhere from 500 to 10,000 residents. About half of the towns have lost population since 1994. The uh, uh, Iowa State researchers say the assessment of the town's services and the attitudes toward community life are highly correlated with the size of the town's population. Uh, in general, according to the researchers, residents in towns with fewer than 750 people rated government and non-government services, as well as the social environment, lower than residents in bigger towns, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the uh, researchers, uh, Terry Besser, who's professor of sociology, was the team lead for the project, said being small makes it so difficult to pull things together. The same people are often called upon for community projects, and there aren't enough of them to carry the weight and accomplish what they want to get done. They just get exhausted. I would also note, too, that infrastructure uh, for a small town is increasingly problematic. There's a uh, a town uh, outside of Richmond called Columbia. It was actually the oldest incorporated town in the state of Virginia, and it unincorporated not long ago because the population was dropping uh, the town itself had a lot of issues with uh, the buildings that were falling apart, and it was just sort of this sleepy out of the way place. Uh, the water treatment plant or the sewage plant needed upgrades. They, they got a federal grant, actually, for several million dollars. I'm very curious to know what happened to it. Uh, but there were so many problems that eventually uh, it was easier for the town to fold up shop and just be absorbed into the county. Because in a town the size of Columbia, which, again, was pretty small, the number of people who were... Uh, willing to pull their weight, uh, as uh, Professor Besser put it, probably could be counted on uh, one, may, no more than two hands. You'd never get to the point of having to count toes. Uh, and and a town needs more than five or six people who uh, give a damn in order for it to survive, unfortunately. Uh, the um, reasons why people live in Small towns in Iowa haven't changed, according to the researchers, uh, over the last 20 years. Top two reasons are family ties, and they grew up in town. Uh, living close to work is also important. You know, it's interesting, uh, that doesn't explain me, because I didn't grow up anywhere near Farmville. And uh, have no close family around here... I, I, the uh, story from Iowa State doesn't mention um, those who, who moved to small towns and why they moved to small towns. Although Professor Besser says it's a challenge because uh, those family ties or those, and those community ties can make new people feel like outsiders. He says that uh, may explain why some residents said they were not invited to participate in community projects. I am very pleased to say that that's not been our experience. Um, You know, certainly you, you get the reputation of the new person, right, for at least a while until you're no longer the new person. But, you know, I talk to people who live around here and their families have been here for hundreds of years. They're living on land that has been in their family for six, seven, maybe eight generations, And they recognize and they realize that if the only people who live in rural America are people like them, then this becomes a wasteland. As a matter of fact, the um, guy who processes our hogs, the first time he came out to the farm, we were talking. And uh, he was was very skeptical (laughs) at first. You know, here you have this couple from the D.C. area. Oh, geez, D.C. area. Uh, and, you know, they're talking about how they've never done this before. And and they want to get into raising pigs. And they're really excited. You know, I, I I get it. I can understand the skepticism. I like to think that he walked away after talking with us with a um, a sense of, okay. In fact, I know that he did because, uh, well, at least I, I hope it wasn't lying to us. Um, he he told us actually before he left that first time. He said, "You know, I'm glad that that folks like you are moving here." Uh, and I didn't say specifically us. He could have been terribly disappointed in us. But but the idea of people moving in uh, from outside of the area into these small towns, into these rural communities, and hopefully revitalizing them. In some cases, keeping them vitalized, uh, whatever the uh, the fact is again, you do need that new blood uh, or else these old towns wither up and die and I don't want to see that the new frontier has way too much going for it alright, so let's get to a, a couple of emails here as I'm now in near total darkness and I'm watching various bugs crawl across my uh, laptop screen, a little creepy but I'll get over it So I uh, got an email a few days ago from Joshua, who said, uh, Cam, love listening. Actually, he said, Mr. Edwards, just call me Cam, please. Joshua, if you want to be formal, you can call me Cameron. Uh, I love listening to your podcast, he says. Thank you. He says, I think I'm caught up on all the episodes now. I'm hoping to move on to a small piece of land in the next year or two, maybe three to five acres. And I'd love to create a self-sufficient homestead, or at least close to it. I was wondering if you might have a couple of book recommendations on how to start from nothing. I'm particularly interested in more natural and or ancient farming techniques that do not call for loads of chemicals. I've never done much gardening, but I've raised the occasional hog and some chickens, and I loved your idea of planting pumpkins for the bacon seeds. Joshua says, thanks for doing this podcast. It's encouraging to hear someone give voice to the thousands of farmers and ranchers across the country who aren't owned by massive corporations. Well, Joshua, thank you very much. Sir. I really do appreciate it. As, as far as books go, uh, I got to tell you, I mean, Joel Salatin is the uh, the guy that I'd recommend you start with. Joel's another Virginia farmer. He's a real Virginia farmer as opposed to a uh, talk show host who uh, tries to garden and Race some animals. This is Joel's full-time job, and he does it very well. He's got Polyface Farm, which is outside of Stanton, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, He he wrote a book. uh, He's written several books, by the way. Um, One of the ones that uh, I would not recommend as a uh, how to start your farm, but I I would recommend as a uh, book that's well worth reading. It's called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. War Stories from the Local Food Front. Uh, He also wrote uh, a couple years ago, Folks, This Ain't Normal. A Farmer's Advice for Happier Hens, Healthier People in a Better World. Uh, the book that I would recommend you reading by Joel Salatin came out in 98. Uh, it's called You Can Farm, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Start and Succeed in a Farming Enterprise. Now, I'll be honest with you, I haven't followed every bit of Joel Salatin's advice, um, but I know people who have, and they've been incredibly happy. You know, his big idea... Uh, and it's not the one that it's not like he came up with the idea, but uh, he certainly put it into into practice. And it does go against the grain of sort of uh, modern industrial agriculture. Is rotational grazing, and the idea of using your land to you know run cattle through, uh, then you run chickens through. He's got uh, portable chicken coops. That he calls chicken tractors. Uh, then the pigs go through. I mean, they're all on a rotation, and so you get the most use out of your land. You don't need to put chemical fertilizer on your uh, on your pasture. Um, so that, that's definitely a book that I would uh, recommend you start with. Uh, uh, you know, three to five acres. You're probably not going to be running a lot of cattle right at first, but uh, but even rotational grazing with sheep or with a couple of pigs, and then you run five or six chickens through. Uh, After that, I think that you can adapt Joel Salatin's techniques to uh, to to whatever your situation uh, starts out to be, Joshua. And I wish you the very best of luck. I got to tell you, it's exciting. Uh, It's you know, if you don't have a lot of experience, it's kind of scary, but it's a challenge to yourself and. That's what we should be doing. We should be pushing ourselves to do new things. We should be pushing ourselves to, to to be more than we were when we woke up this morning. And there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. Uh, but, you know, trying something new and getting out of your comfort zone, I think that's, uh, however you do it, that's the, uh, that's the key. So start with Salentin's book, um, Mother Earth News, I think, has, is a magazine. It's not a book. Um, but I think it has some good advice every month on, again, how to do these sorts of things without having to rely on, uh, a chemical fertilizer or chemical pesticides or things of that nature. We don't use any chemicals in the garden. I mean, you can use natural stuff like neem oil and things like that. And we've occasionally had to, uh, to spray neem oil on some of the plants just to try to keep the bugs out. But, Uh, one of the, uh, listen, I'm still learning Joshua. I'm not the, the expert on telling you how to keep bugs out of your, your vegetables. I like the idea that, uh, somebody had sent in a couple of weeks ago about not keeping all of your vegetables all together. You know, where we've like now where we have rows of tomato, 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 and then we've got. Potato, 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 and then beets, 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 beets. Uh, spread it out, jumble it up, make it a little bit more random so the bugs have a harder time finding what they want to eat and find delicious. And, you know, Joshua, you keep listening, and uh, I hopefully I will have more advice to offer you here before uh, you make your big move. But thank you again for tuning in and for uh, getting caught up on all 16 episodes before this one. Also, in the uh, emails, again, forty acrefool at gmail.com. That's the email address. John wrote in, had a, a thought on coyotes. Have you thought of using a guard donkey for coyote control? John says, I have a friend in Georgia who has one and says they work great. Uh, John also says, P.S., you're welcome in the house anytime you're back in Oklahoma. We could hunt, fish, shoot. John, next time I'm back in Oklahoma... I'm going to take you up on that. I don't, I'm not even sure where in Oklahoma you live. It's a big state. It's bigger than you think. But uh, I'm going to take you up on that if I, if I get the opportunity to have any free time. Last time I was in Oklahoma, uh, gee, many Christmas, almost three years ago. And it was for basically a weekend. I need to get back. The, uh, the trouble with me going back to Oklahoma right now is that it can't just be me. Right, I mean, my daughter lives in Oklahoma, so if I'm going back to Oklahoma, the whole family is going back to Oklahoma, and we're going to go see my daughter. That becomes very cost prohibitive, which is why my daughter typically comes to see the family. But I miss Oklahoma, and I would love to go back. And I will totally take you up on your offer, John. Now, as for guard donkeys, you know, you're not the first person to bring this up. Um, Rebecca actually uh, sent me an email a few months ago talking about guard donkeys and how we need to get a guard donkey. I I I'm I don't have any objections to the idea of guard donkeys, but yeah, it, it's, it's not as simple as that. That's the problem. Theoretically, I would love the idea of a guard donkey, but realistically, okay, so we've got our free-range chickens, and they're fine because they free-range in the yard, but they don't wander that far. Um, the property itself is not completely enclosed and fenced. So if we have a guard donkey, I'm afraid that we would have to definitely improve the fencing situation. Uh, Not only would we have to, uh, and again, I feel much more uncomfortable if we actually had an enclosed area uh, for the chickens and the donkeys to wander around in. So we'd at least have to, you know, enclose uh, a, a fairly significant size space. Then in addition to that. Uh, we also have to put another fence around the garden, which we have plans for eventually anyway, because we want to keep the chickens out. So far, we haven't had too much trouble, except the, uh, the chickens keep scratching all of the straw off of the potato beds, because we're, we're, we're doing straw mulch, or at least we were, uh, until the chickens decided that they're going to go in every day and start scratching the straw. So, you know, at some point, <laughs> what I'm saying, I guess, John is that uh, I would love to have a guard donkey. I would also kind of like to have a guard llama, uh, now that I've been uh, lucky enough to hang out with Mushu, uh, thanks to uh, to Greg down in North Carolina. I, I, I kind of want a llama. But before I get a guard donkey or a guard llama or any other sort of guard creature that can wander around and uh, protect the, the critters, I've really, really... Got to get some better fencing. And guess what that means? (laughs) More time. Uh, That's another project. And so we'll put that on the to-do list. In the meantime, uh, we have not seen any coyotes over the past couple of weeks. All of the chickens are still around and still intact. And that is a very good thing. We've got a couple that are getting closer to laying age. They should be going in about a month or so. Uh, So knock on wood that was real honest to goodness wood uh we will not have any more coyote attacks and you know if you know anybody with uh time on their hands feel like you know just putting up fencing in their spare time because they just they just enjoy it so much let me know i would love to talk with them i think we could help them out all right unfortunately we're about out of time here i gotta go get ready to put the kids to bed it's totally dark outside right now. The moths are attacking me. So we're going to wrap things up. But thank you so much for being a part of this week's edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. Uh, we will be back with you next week with another podcast. But in the meantime, every day, don't forget, NRA News Game & Company, live 2 p.m. Eastern on nranews.com, on demand on iHeartRadio, midnight Eastern on Sirius XM Patriot 125, 5 p.m. Eastern on Sportsman Channel, Uh, Anywhere else you can think of? I don't think we're on shortwave yet, but uh, I could be wrong about that. Anyway, lots of places for you to find us. All right. Thank you again for tuning in to 40 Acres and a Fool. And we will see you soon right here thanks to the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards
0: on the Blaze Radio Network.